The mind, by nature, is radiant and pure, the Buddha said. It is because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. Do we believe that? Okay. Whatever distress or unhappiness or anxiety or frustration you have felt today or at any other time in your life caused by a mere visitor to the mind. Now, if we could believe that, really, wouldn't we want to know how they got in the door, <laughs> how to serve them an eviction notice, <laughs> you know, how to kind of foreclose on them <laughs> or whatever? Because so often the uh, experience of suffering or our experience of unhappiness, whatever causes us unhappiness, feels like it is so deeply inherent in who I am, who we are, that, well, let's face it, we've learned to live with it. But Saida Utejaniya says, it is not you who removes the defilements from the mind. Wisdom does that job. So what he says is that it's not through our own personal efforts, failures, successes, that we remove the defilements and therefore the causes of unhappiness, but it's when understanding is present, the defilements as the source of unhappiness are removed. Let's face it, there's a wide spectrum of sufferings and causes of suffering. And because there is such a, a gradient, the Buddha offered in his Noble Eightfold Path three trainings to address the different grades of suffering. And the first of the trainings is sila that we're undertaking here by uh, taking the precepts. It is a purification of our intention in speaking and acting in such a way as to not act out our anger, our frustration, our greed, our unskillful states of mind. And when we can exercise that sila or that awareness of intention, then we at least lay a foundation for the uh, living in harmony with one another. We're not hurting each other by what we say and do. But even though we may not be speaking and acting in a way that causes others harm, we may be thinking it, <laughs> we may be obsessing about some slight, some shame, some humiliation, some anger, even though we're not saying it or acting it, and we're still suffering because the mind is obsessing with some unskillful state of mind and can't escape it. And for this degree of suffering, 
the Buddha offered second training, which is more powerful and more subtle. It's a training in samadhi or concentration. And it effectively means that we develop mindfulness or awareness of a, on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. And when we can, then temporarily these obsessing states of mind no longer obsess us. And this is a great relief, even if you have a, a, a brief period of it during a sitting or a day where you're just not obsessing with any unwholesome state of mind. And we feel more at ease, we feel more content, we feel more accepting of ourselves and others. But we know that conditions can change. Someone can push the button or pull our trigger and we'll be off and running with some obsessive or transgressive actions. And so the Buddha offered a third training, more subtle still and more powerful, in the practice of vipassana or insight. And what vipassana or insight involves is not just purifying our intention in speaking and acting, and not just purifying our mind of obsessive states of mind, but it's purifying our understanding. It is insight or vipassana that purifies our understanding so that even latent defilements lying in the mind don't arise. They get uprooted, or they get suppressed with insight, and they get uprooted with uh, deeper insight. So all of these practices really are mindfulness trainings, which is what we're doing here. So if defilements are such a source of suffering or difficulty for us, what are they really? Well, we should understand that defilements are states of mind that manifest as thoughts, moods, feelings, beliefs. But all of these states of mind are rooted in delusion, not seeing things clearly, and may be accompanied by attachment or aversion. But the interesting thing about defiled states of mind is they're always accompanied by restlessness. And restlessness is this, well, agitated thinking state of mind when the mind is just in an agitated state, randomly thinking, proliferating thought after thought after thought. This is restlessness. And all of these defilements are fueled and always accompanied by some degree of restlessness. They're also always accompanied by delusion or ignorance. It is because of not seeing or not understanding that the states of mind arise and proliferate in the mind. 
Now, when I say they're accompanied by ignorance or delusion, ignorance is when we don't know. We just don't, we don't see, we don't know, we're not aware of. For example, today, when you're practicing and the mind wanders off into some train of thought and you're not aware of it, it wanders around in this thought or jumps on a train of thought and goes for a minute or two or five or twenty. And at some point, you jump off the train or the train stops and you come out of this long-running hallucination and realize, wow, uh, I've, been, I've been lost in thought. But during the time that we are lost in thought, we don't know it. We don't know we're lost in thought. We don't know we're thinking. We don't know what we're thinking about. We don't know where we are. We don't know anything with full awareness. That is being ignorant. Just, you don't even know where the mind has gone. You don't know what it's doing. <coughs> well, this is a dangerous state of mind because we can uh, traverse a tremendous uh, terrain of the mind that's not always wholesome. And we can proliferate all kinds of uh, unwholesome intentions and desires and thoughts and beliefs and judgments don't even know it and yet they will have their effect on us as we move about in the world in our life that's you know the ignorance that causes confusion dullness where we're really enchanted I like to think of ignorance as being enchanted by thoughts but sometimes we're not quite so deluded, we're not so ignorant. We're actually aware of what's going on, but we don't understand it correctly. We see something and we think it's other than it really is. And this is moha or delusion, it's knowing wrongly. It's ascribing value or meaning to experience that is not inherent within it. Not inherent in that experience or in that object. For example, when the mind is filled with desire, what you look at or what you see when the mind is filled with desire, all you can see of that object is the pleasant aspects of it. That's how you can fall in love. You see someone, have a lot of attachment, that person looks great. It's like, what's wrong with them? I can't find any, I can't see anything wrong. They're perfect. They're for me. Yay. Okay. And then your state of mind changes. Attachment leaves the mind. Aversion enters the mind. You don't notice it. Everything you see when you look through the lens of aversion, all you see is the unpleasant aspect of it. Same person doing the same thing. Aversion in your mind, you look at them and you think, what happened to you? 
Nothing happened to them. Something happened to your mind. So attachment, craving, clinging has the deluding power of causing us not to see things as they really are, but only to see the pleasant aspect of it. Aversion has its deluding aspect, causing us to see or causing us to believe that we're seeing something fully, but really only seeing the unpleasant aspect of it. This again, think about it. If you're not aware of when attachment or aversion arises in the mind, how can you believe anything you see? Anything about what you think about what you see? So we live in a world of delusion. But let's face it, uh, attachment, aversion, confusion, bewilderment, depression, fear, anxiety, stress, distress, depression, they're pretty, pretty ubiquitous in our life. We all experience a lot of those states of mind. Sometimes only in passing or only for brief periods of time, but sometimes uh, obsessively. Uh, and it's clear to see that they cause a tremendous amount of suffering. But because they are so such frequent visitors to the mind, they're so habitual, we haven't seen them for what they are, we take them to be who I am. So in a moment of impatience, I don't see it as a moment of impatience, I see what an impatient person I really am all the time. I eternalize it into this is here forever and it's who I really am. So we can think that about ourselves. You know, we have an angry outburst and somebody accuses us of being an angry person and we believe them. But most of your day, most of your life, you're not angry. And yet we still carry around this image, belief, underlying assumption that we're really an angry person. It's not who we are. Anger may visit the mind frequently, and we may be particularly blind to it, and so we act it out. But it's not inherent in who we are. But it's so habitual, so unseen, that we get identified with it as me, we appropriate it as mine, and these defilements really interfere with finding joy, happiness, contentment, peace, fulfillment in our life. And they obstruct our practice. If we don't see them, they really interfere with the development of our awareness and understanding. But we should not mistake the appearance of these defilements as being unnatural because they are arising due to their lawful causes and conditions. 
they too are part of the Dharma. The Dharma is the way things are. And these states of mind don't arise. Nobody forces them on you. They're not a mistake. They arise when conditions are ripe. And then they arise. And so they are a part of Dharma. They are a natural phenomena due to <coughs> rising due to causes and conditions. And they can be known through awareness. We can learn to recognize them through awareness and we can begin to understand them with wisdom. And if we begin to see them and understand them, they weaken. They gradually become less of a rogue force in the mind. So these are the defilements some manifestation of attachment, aversion, delusion, accompanied by restlessness, acted out or, or obsessing, or at least lying as a little mind bomb, you know, in the mind. And what is the damage? What is the danger of these defilements? Well, the Buddha said, it is because of these visitors to the mind that we suffer. Well, I don't need to remind you of what suffering is, but it always involves unpleasant physical and mental experience. We suffer when we experience a lot or some unpleasantness, unpleasantness of mind, unpleasantness of body, tightness, tension, pressure in the body, in the mind, stress in the mind, anxiety in the mind. So, if it wasn't for the unpleasantness that they cause, we wouldn't need to be so concerned. But none of us likes unpleasantness. We're always, we're doing everything we can in our life to minimize, avoid unpleasantness. And yet if we don't take a look at the mind and really begin to understand the mind, no matter what we acquire in the way of things, relationships, money, status, prestige, no matter what we acquire to satisfy our need, wish to be happy, if we don't understand the mind, will still experience a lot of unpleasantness and therefore suffer. When I say that defilements um, delude the mind, it is as if they cast a spell over the mind. And Upandita talks about the spell that they cast as being like a long-running hallucination. It says we, we create a world in the mind and then we live in it. And you can see it in something as simple as your wandering mind. You create a fantasy about someone or some time or something and you enter that mind-created hallucination and play with it, you know, until, well, the bubble breaks and you come out of it and you realize 
Well, that's not really happening. If we don't see it, we'll try to manifest it. We'll try to actually create that in more tangible form in our life. So we want to, we really want to get a handle on the hallucinations that these defilements proliferate in the mind, or we're going to keep acting them out in ways that only compounds and magnifies our suffering. So we should understand that these defilements are not, are not the physical experiences in the body that are unpleasant. Being sick, of course, physically sick, is, you know, it's unpleasant, but it's not a mental defilement. It has its own causes and conditions. The defilements that I'm talking about are all in the mind, but they do condition strong at times, subtle at other times, sensations in the body. When we get angry or rageful and we're clenching our fists and gritting our teeth and squinting our eyes and hunching our shoulders and heating up and tr just trembling with rage, that's not pleasant. That's not pleasant in the body. It deeply conditions unpleasant results. And so too with the other unwholesome states of mind to a lesser or greater degree. When we're acting out our defilements or the defilements that has arisen in the mind and we're speaking and moving in the world to express our anger and desire, we don't know it. We don't know. And so we can't exercise any restraint. We can't exercise any second thoughts or reflection. We're just blind to acting the way we want to, the way we feel. When you feel angry, you want to strike out. Or sometimes with aversion, we internalize it and we get depressed or we get frustrated. Or we, get, uh, we aim our aversion inward. So the, you know, the first uh, training, as I mentioned, to the Buddha's Noble Path is to uh, exercise that restraint on speaking and acting by being mindful of the intention. And this will be uh, an object of your meditation, to notice the impulse in the mind when you speak, when you act, before you speak, before you act, so that you have a moment of reflection, a, a space in the mind to reflect on where is this impulse and intention coming from? Is it coming from a wholesome state, coming from an unwholesome state? And if you see that there's aversion or attachment or frustration, disappointment there, we can step back, have the space of mind to say no to it. But when we're acting out, we do it with full energy, often with a lot of pleasure in the mind. We can do it repeatedly, without remorse, without second thoughts. Compounding the 
unpleasant effect that it will produce. When we're obsessing about some unwholesome state of mind, it's not that we're angry, or it's not that we're frustrated, it's not that we're disappointed, it's that we're thinking about it. And we may, just through thinking about it, create it in the mind. We think we've got the story down pat, why I should be angry. They said this, they should have said that, they didn't do this. I'm so, I should be, I could be, I, I am. So. <laughs> That kind of obsessing is really painful because often we don't know how to stop. Sometimes we can stop from acting out, we just turn away, count to ten, whatever it is, leave that scene and we can uh, control acting out. But when our mind gets rattling, rattling around some obsessive state of mind, what can you do? I'm sure you've all been caught in, you know, uh, states of mind that you cannot stop, you can't get rid of, you can't. And I have to admit that this is a really painful place in practice when our mindfulness and awareness gets strong enough to see that this is what's going on. You really get mindful and you can see, wow, the mind is really obsessing about this, that, and the other thing. Yet, there is not enough wisdom to know how to let go. And that's where a lot of practice takes place. And so, if, you're, if you've noticed time today where the mind is really in a fit, it's really in a snit, and you're painfully aware of it and can't let go of it, then your practice is doing well. <laughs> Now what happens with the um, practice of insight, or when the momentum of mindfulness develops, is we see these obsessive states of mind, we're not acting them out, and in fact, we see the potential in everything to respond with an unskillful state of mind. We can dredge up something from the past that we didn't get angry about it at lunchtime, but now that I think about it, I, I think I can get angry about it. It's like the experience goes into our mind without provoking, at that time, a strong reaction. And yet, when we, you know, in some other state of mind, when we're feeling particularly vulnerable or weak or, you know, whatever, we can draw up that memory and proliferate all kinds of thought, and arouse an unwholesome state of mind that never previously existed. This is dangerous. But unless we are able to see these experiences as they go into the mind with insight, with true insight and understanding, they go into the mind carrying the potential to at some future time produce an obsessive state of mind. 
So what this implies is that only when we're mindful and seeing clearly the way things are, are we protecting ourselves from future obsessive, obsessing. So this really puts the onus on us to uh, practice awareness with as much continuity as we can so that even though right now we're not particularly caught in some acting out or obsessive state of mind, but we're taking in experience across the spectrum of all the sense doors all the time. And if we aren't paying attention, recognizing them, they're planting seeds, they're going into the mind with the seed or the potential of producing, obsessing in the future when conditions are right. So, given that that's the, that's the template that we're working with in, in the mind, or the tablet that we're working with in the mind, how do we work with them? We're here, we've got the time, we've got some instruction. Maybe the first thing that we need to hear in the form of information is that these are defilements and they're dangerous. They're what cause us to suffer. And having heard that, we can then begin to see them or look for them in our practice. And it is not easy to take what you hear in a talk like this or what you read in a book about anger and aversion and desire and attachment, frustration, disappointment. It's not easy to read that and then see it in your own mind. We can be wallowing in some of these states of mind and not recognize them because they are so familiar that we no longer see them. The first three-month retreat I did after six, seven years of doing shorter retreats like this, for six weeks I didn't see sloth and torpor, and yet I couldn't stay awake. When I say I didn't see, I never was able to acknowledge to myself, this is sloth and torpor. This is real sluggishness of mind. I was struggling with it. I was trying to get all the antidotes I could. Every interview it was, what can I do about this? And was getting lots of advice. But I never really acknowledged it as, oh, this is what's going on. This is how it is. I know it sounds crazy, but that's how deluded we can be. Living in the midst of anger, aversion, fear, frustration, discrimination, whatever it is, and not notice it. It's just become a part of our personality even. So coming out of denial, coming out of avoidance, uh, minimizing, kind of pretending that it's not important is really difficult. And that's why, again, the practice of awareness and the continuity of awareness is so vital. Because if we practice awareness, as we're doing here, eventually we're going to see things. We're going to see how it is for us. We're going to understand it. 
we're going to perceive, we're going to recognize clearly this state of mind. We'll be able to distinguish fear from anxiety, depression from frustration, from disappointment, desire from jealousy, jealousy from envy, because they all have their own flavor, they all have their own taste, they all ha arise due to their own conditions. But if we're just unhappy, I'm a guy from New England, I grew, <laughs> grew up not, well, to the extent that I grew up, not very well informed. From my whole childhood and for many years into my early adulthood, I only had one emotion. One. I was moody. I didn't know anything else about it except I was moody. If it rained, I was moody. If I didn't get what I wanted, I was moody. No matter what I'm, moody. That's really being, that's pitiful. But that's, there wasn't a lot of acknowledgement in my household, in my family of origin, about states of mind. You know, there wasn't a lot of emotional intelligence at all. And it was a struggle. It was a long slog to wake up to the full spectrum of suffering. I was <laughs> 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 but, you know, it was, it was a journey of discovery. It was pretty good, actually. <clears throat> One thing about uh, when we, as we get close to and recognize or begin to recognize these states of mind, put a name on them. To name your defilement. Name the defilement that's arisen in the mind because to be able to name this state of mind begins to take its power away from you. It doesn't have so much power over you. If we're angry, we're lost in it. If we can say, this is anger. Already there's a distance in the mind between the anger and me. So powerful to have a clear perception, clear recognition. But for most of us, when we see that the mind has been infiltrated by one of these unwholesome states of mind, we get anxious, we get fretful, we get judgmental, we get critical about ourselves, as if we could do something otherwise. But actually, after recognizing any one of these states of mind, we should relax. Relax, meaning acknowledge this is the way it is right now. This is the way it is for me, for now. Because we can't just change it. If we, if we could, we would, but we can't. So we don't want to compound the suffering by being critical and judgmental and fretful and anxious and guilty about feeling one of these states of mind. So it's important to relax. And in that relaxing, to be able to acknowledge and accept, this is the way it is for me for now. Saito Tejaniya says, the mind is not yours, but you're responsible for it. Things arise in the mind that we don't 
we don't know where they came from. And yet, once they arise, we have to do something with them. And if we're not aware, we'll act them out. If we're a little aware, we'll just obsess. And if we're insightful, we can put them aside. But that's our responsibility. To try to get rid of the defilement by struggling with it is futile. We can distract ourselves from it. We can try to ignore it. We can try to minimize it, thinking it's, it's not that bad. But in struggling with it, we again just feed the defilement. Now remember that all of these defilements arise due to their own causes and conditions. If the causes and conditions are removed, the defilement does not arise. If the causes and conditions of the defilement are removed, the defilement doesn't arise. So the natural question is, well, what are the causes and conditions for the arising of the defilement? Right? Because if we, can, if we can just take one of them away, it won't arise. It'll come later. Defilements arise because we're not paying attention correctly. We don't have much energy. We don't have much skill in observing the mind. And they're removed when we pay wise attention with sustained, persevering energy and uh, are careful about them, when we take care with them. And then we can bring mindfulness to bear on the situation, seeing the defilement for what it is. So. If we pay attention, we can recognize, and when, once we recognize, we should relax, accept, acknowledge, this is the way it is. The third step is to exercise some restraint, because so often the pressure behind the defilement is to be acted out. They want, it's as if they want to be acted out. Because we all know, if you get angry, if, you, if someone gets angry at you, or you feel angry, if you can just blurt it out, <sighs> feels so good, kind of, not really, for very long, but, or when you, have, when you have a lot of desire, if you can satisfy that desire, this is the addict's problem, if you can satisfy that desire, <laughs> it feels, ah, there. But really, satisfying the desire just feeds the addiction. So we're fooled in thinking that if I act it out, I'll actually get rid of it. But actually when we act it out, we only strengthen it. So it's important to be able to exercise some restraint in any, with any of these states of mind. And one thing you can do when even here your mind is obsessing about something is to turn your attention away from that thing towards something else. Now, I don't know if you've had this experience, but you're sitting here, your eyes are closed, and your mind is in hell. Hmm? And you're, you're torturing yourself about something from the past, something you said, something someone did, or something you can't do, want to do, whatever. <laughs> you're just really in a real fit. The best way to get a reality check on what's going on, 
open your eyes. Just open your eyes and look around. It's like, hello, that's not happening. I'm not there. I'm not there then. I'm not. It, and it's such a, well, it's so obvious. And yet, when we're caught in these kinds of hallucinations, they are very powerful. Really, really powerful. So to exercise some restraint by replacing them with current sense objects. If you're lost in some fantasy, open your eyes, connect with what you see, what you hear, what you smell, what you feel in the present moment. Or you may uh, exercise some reflection when you're caught up in tremendous amount of doubt about practice. You can recall that which inspires you with faith. You can recall other people that you know, whose practice you know, that are inspiring to you. Or if you're caught up in blaming others, you can practice forgiveness. If you're caught up in anger, you can practice loving kindness. There's all kinds of uh, antidotal uh, reflections that oppose the force of the hindrances, the defilements. Or you can do the um, Nancy Reagan practice. Just don't do it. Just avoid it. You know, just, you know, alcoholics that, you know, want to stay sober, don't go into bars. It's just too much in your face. So too with any of us. If you know your, your weakness, if you know the area of your mind that you have no control over, or that you are susceptible to, or that you're obsessing in, is to avoid that situation. I can't remember the poet's name, but there's a poet interviewed on uh, NPR, Terry Gross. Reading one of her poems, the line that struck me was, your mind is a dangerous neighborhood, don't go there alone. Your mind is a dangerous neighborhood. If you don't take your mindfulness with you when you go wandering around in your mind, <laughs> you're unprotected. <laughs> and you're going to get ambushed, you can get mugged by any of these states of mind. So take your mindfulness with you. Don't go alone. <laughs> Recognize the, the defilement. Relax. Exercise some restraint. The fourth step is to reframe your understanding about them. So often when we're caught in a obsessive, defiled, hindering state of mind, we think, I can't practice. I can't do this. This is driving me crazy. I, I got to get rid of this. But that's the wrong understanding because these states of mind are the very place to establish awareness. This is the time to be practicing when you're feeling really angry, really frustrated, really caught up in desire, really obsessing, that's the time to pay close, continuous attention to that state of mind. Not to wait till it's gone and then pick up your practice again. Yeah, well, you can wait till it's gone and pick up your practice then, but it's better to pay attention then, establish your mindfulness on that state of mind. And the amazing thing is, we can. 
I mentioned it earlier, I think, that even when obsessed with sloth and torpor, and you just think, oh, I just got to take a nap. <laughs> I just got to take a nap. I can't be mindful of anything. You can actually be mindful of it. It takes some practice, but you can be mindful of any of these states of mind. Again, Saito Tejaniya says, try to recognize that defilements are simply defilements, that they're not your defilement. Every time you identify yourself with them or reject them, you're only increasing their strength. The wandering mind is not a problem. Your attitude that it should not be wandering is the problem. The object that you're attending to is not really important, but how you observe it or view it is. Thoughts are just thoughts. Feelings are just feelings. Yogis often make the mistake of expecting or hoping for good experience rather than being willing to work with the defilements. Now, let's be honest. How many of you have came to this retreat thinking, great, seven days of practice, just really seven days of working with the defilements. I can hardly wait. <laughs> We know. We think we come thinking, oh, I'm hoping for some I'm hoping for the best. You know, I'm hoping to get calm, clear, collected, confident, insightful. Sorry. <laughs> At least bring your willingness to work with the defilements because that's the job, that's the work. So we want to recognize these states of mind. Uh, relax around them by acknowledging them, uh, exercise some restraint, not acting them out, reframe our understanding. They're not to be avoided, but they're to be engaged. And when we engage them with our awareness, they will reveal their characteristic. Awareness sees the unique flavor of these states of mind. That's what awareness is. You know, when you get close to something, even close to a sensations in the body with your awareness, you can actually feel, you feel it. Well, same with the states of mind, these obsessive, defiled states of mind. They feel differently. And when you grok them, when you are able to put your attention on them, you begin to understand their nature. This is the nature of fear. This is what fear does to the mind. This is what fear feels like in the body, or what it conditions in the body, or depression, or despair, or jealousy, or envy. This is the nature of envy. Now, we've all experienced these states of mind in kind of a general way. But do we really know what they feel like? Do we really know their nature? Not just the story behind, my jealousy, my fear, my anger. But do we know their nature, how they are for everyone? Well, that's what we learn as we pay mindful attention to them. They reveal their nature.
Again, Saito Tejaniya says, use the appearance of the defilements as an opportunity to investigate their nature. They are natural phenomena. They are not your defilement. Everyone experiences them. So what is the nature of attachment? What is the nature of restlessness? What is the nature of anxiety? What is the nature of depression? Saito Utejaniya has told me, and he's pretty, pretty open about it, that as a layman, he experienced severe depression. He was a layman, married, had a business, and uh, uh, I think three times he had severe depression, just crippling depression. The first time he just muscled his way through it and pulled himself out of it. The second time it took longer and he was less successful, but managed to survive. The third time, couldn't do it. All he could do was be mindful of it. And he said an interesting thing. He said, people who are really depressed, they know their thoughts, but they're identified with them. And so it's really getting that, planting that seed in the mind that these thoughts, they're not yours. They're not who you are. They come due to causes and conditions. See them for what they are without identifying with them as me, as mine, as who I am. Do not try to avoid objects and experiences. Try to avoid getting entangled in the defilements with them. This is important. In this practice, we're not trying to avoid anything. Whatever arises in the mind or arises in our environment, we need to cultivate the courage to, I want to say engage it, but let's say acknowledge it without entanglement, without being afraid of it, without being ashamed of it, without being humiliated by it, without being attracted to it, desiring it, averse to it, but to be able to face it, to see it objectively, well, this is the way it is, without getting entangled in it through one of the defilements. And if we do, and as we do establish this momentum of awareness of the nature of the states of mind, we begin to learn something really insightful. We begin to realize something that's very powerful. The first is, none of these states last very long. Now, I myself have said, and I've heard others of you say, I was depressed all day. I was sleepy all day. I was struggling with fear, you know, for a whole week, whatever. Not possible. Not possible. We can say that because we generalize a recurring experience into an eternal experience. And what mindfulness does is it shows us the gaps. It shows us the places where we're not caught in that state of mind. And this is important because we see that this state of mind is not the all-pervasive, consuming oppressor of the mind. But instead, it's 
arises, and we get identified with it, and then it leaves. And if we don't notice when it leaves, we really suffer by kind of uh, eternalizing it, I call it. Taking a momentary perception, eternalizing it, and feeding it with another momentary perception, momentary perception, momentary perception. So, what the continuity of mindfulness does for us is it reveals, it, re it, uh, it allows us to see, to realize that these states of mind are impermanent. But it's not because we read it in a book, it's not because you heard me say it, it's because you experience it for yourself. When you experience it for yourself, you can't, it can't be denied. You can't argue with your own experience. That's why it's so valuable. And actually, when we see for ourselves that this state of mind is impermanent, we open a new pathway in the mind, another way of dealing with it. And the more frequently we are able to do that, the stronger that pathway in the mind becomes. But we have, to, we have to endure it. We have to endure this state of mind until the mind finds another way to deal with it. Accepting. Realizing that it's impermanent. And when we do, it lays down a new track in the mind that we can repeat again and again and again. No matter how many times this state of mind arises, this defilement, if we do that, eventually we will drop the unskillful habit of indulgence and identification and we'll condition or create a new way of dealing with these states of mind which involves awareness and understanding. The second thing that we learn about these states of mind is that they're all unsatisfying. I know that doesn't always sound right because you know sometimes we get angry and we're so self-righteously angry we're so justified in being angry, it's pleasant. Or desire. You know, when you get caught in desire and you're just fantasizing about that thing or person that you want, it's just so much fun until you actually pay attention, not to the object of your desire, but to the feeling of desire. When you feel desire, it's really unpleasant. But when you're only seeing the object of your desire, all you can see is the pleasantness. So we want to distinguish between the object of our anger, the object of our desire, the object of our envy, the object of our fear, from the state itself. If you have seen one fear to the end, fear of snakes, fear of the dark, fear of public speaking, whatever it is, if you have seen one fear to the end where you've endured it until your mind has found another way of dealing with it, accepting, seeing that it's impermanent, you've seen all fears. You can do that with any fear. And the same with aversion, same with desire. But it's not easy. And it takes practice. It takes determination, it takes aspiration, it takes energy, it takes clarity, clear perception, it takes repetition. But it can be done.
In order to understand the defilements, you have to watch them again and again. What can you gain from just having or expecting good experiences? If you understand the nature of the defilements, they will dissolve. And once you're able to handle defilements, good experiences will naturally follow. Sajrutajaniya says. So these are the defilements. These are the obstacles to our practice. These are what have caused us frustration, disappointment, tension, stress, today, these states of mind. But they can be recognized, can relax. We can exercise some restraint. We can understand that this is the very place of establishing awareness. But it takes courage, let's face it. When you're feeling angry and frustrated, whatever, it takes courage to be willing to face it. But ask yourself, am I willing to live with this for the rest of my life? Or am I willing to look at it in the face squarely once? That's the question that we can ask ourselves. Because if we have that courage to look, we will see things as they really are. And this is what frees the mind. This understanding, oh, this is the way it really is. This is the way of these defilements. And when we see it and understand it, they no longer invade the mind, causing suffering. Always remember that it is not you who removes the defilements. Wisdom does the job. And when you're continuously aware, wisdom unfolds naturally. So let's sit for a moment and let the words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.